0: In the book of Romans, chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, the Apostle Paul writes, Now what should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can he, we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so too so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Father God, may it never be said of us that we take your amazing grace for granted. The grace that saves us, that washes us, and has set us free from sin's shackles. May we recognize that that grace is now transforming us. For your plan of redemption leads us out of sin, not back into it. Father, forgive us again, for we are sheep prone to wander, prone to leave you, the one whom we love. Will you bless Pastor Jeff with the ability to proclaim your truth of victory over sin and the defeat of, its, of our captivity towards it, and may we be set free through the preaching of your word. We say this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Patrick. How are we doing? You
1: guys awake? Are, are, you, are you enjoying fall? Is it okay? Yeah? Good, good so far. Hey, it's been like a record warm, hasn't it? Fall is fall. It's been great. I think it'll probably uh, turn pretty quickly here, but I personally have been enjoying fall, though usually by this time in the year, I'm starting to get a little fall into a little bit of depression um, for the winter that's coming up. But I'm excited. I'm excited that you're here. I don't know about you, but sometimes I just don't like having uh, instrumentalists on the stage. Sometimes I I can do without them. I mean, worship team. We want to thank you for your efforts and your service. We're not making any announcements that we're cutting the worship team. We love you. We thank you for your service. But sometimes I think just the most encouraging thing on a Sunday morning is to show up and listen to your peers and our friends and the family of God and their voices. Uh, just reverberating off the walls, and I think that's just so encouraging uh, at times. Uh, We're going to be in Romans chapter 6. We're going to be in that very passage, so if you have your Bible, you can stay there. We're going to be looking at those five verses that Patrick just read. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German Christian minister who opposed the Nazis' unjust imprisonment and murder of six million Jews, was arrested and executed in 1943. He saw the German Lutheran Church turning a blind eye to Hitler's atrocities. He saw a grace in doctrine only, a changeless grace that had taken no effect in the lives of those who professed it. He called this famously cheap grace. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he wrote these now famous words Cheap grace is preaching the preaching. is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Now, where had all these folks gotten this notion of cheap grace, this cut-rate grace, bargain-basement grace. Well, they got it from Romans chapters 1 through 5. You see, if you take the book of Romans and you only read Romans 1 through 5, chapters 1 through 5, you might come across with this idea. Why? Because Paul has made a thunderous case. It has been undeniable. Chapter after chapter after chapter, what Paul has said is this, you are saved by grace, which is delivered to the open and empty hands of your faith. By justifying faith, you have been justified before God by faith, and he's made the case for it so strongly that now in chapter 6, he has to pivot. He has to turn and say, oh, but wait, for those of you who think that grace is a license to go on sinning, no way. And so he's going to tell us today, he's going to tell us in no uncertain terms that we are no longer to continue in a life of sin Why? Number one, we died to the enslavement of sin. He tells us that we died to the enslavement of sin. Chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, and and then we'll flip over to chapter 7 and the first six verses there, which is his principal analogy. It's his principal illustration. He says, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may abound, so that grace may multiply? Heavens, No! Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still go on living in it? Paul is saying, We who have died with Christ to sin, how can we go on living in the enslavement to sin? Now, he gives this illustration in chapter 7, verses 1 through 6 of a married couple that die. One of them dies, right? They don't both die, one of them dies. He says in verse 1 in chapter 7, he says, Since I am speaking to those who know the law, if you know the Old Testament law, brothers and sisters, don't you know that the law rules over someone as long as he is alive? For example, a married woman is legally bound to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law regarding the husband. That is the law of covenant marriage that kept them together. Verse 3, so then, if she is married to another man while a while her husband is living, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the, that law. That is the marriage covenant law. Then if she is married to another man, she is not an adulteress. That is if her husband dies and she marries another. Verse 4, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you, you also were uh, put um, <clears throat> to death in relation to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. You belong to him who was raised from the dead in order that we may bear the fruit of God, fruit for God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions aroused through the law. See how it works. You know about a law. What do you want to do? You want to break it. The sinful passions aroused through the law were working in us to bear the fruit for death, but now we have been released from the law since we have died to what held us, so that we may serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the old letter of the law. What is he talking about here? Years ago, I spoke with a woman who needed to confess something. She came to me, she wanted to talk to me, and she wanted to confess to get something off of her chest. And she told me about her life. She told me all about her life, and she told me all about her kids and how she had just literally poured her life into her children and poured her life into her marriage and poured her life into her church. And her life, generally speaking, was very blessed. And she went on to say how wonderful her kids were and tell us all about just what wonderful, productive, amazing young people they were. They had grown up to be. And then she also recounted the atrocity or the, uh, the tribulations and, and the trials that she had gone through in life. She talked about the people that she had lost, her mother, and then a daughter, and then finally her husband. And in my pastoral mind, I was already, be, to be, I was already beginning to formulate what passages from the Scriptures I wanted to take her to to bring her comfort uh, but she surprised me. She pivoted. She turned. Um, as I began to quote Psalm 23 to her, Yea, the Lord is my shepherd. You know, I shall not want it, that sort of thing. I began to quote that to her, and I said something clumsy about missing her husband. She said, Oh, no, that's what I came to tell you. I don't miss him at all. I don't miss him at all. She, and she began to describe a life that was a veritable prison. She did what he wanted to do. They spent money on what he wanted to spend. They went on the vacations that where she where he wanted to go, and she began to describe this life that was a life essentially of enslavement to his whims, to his will, and some of it actually was quite horrific. And she said, "I've not missed him a day since he he's been gone." And I've been enjoying my life. And then she went on to tell me that she was glad she was able to serve the Lord. She said this She said, You know, there are times when I do miss him, and I really did love him. But I've been able to serve Jesus in a way that I never would be able to if I was still under his control. Now, whatever you may think about her situation or that story, maybe some of you would judge her. And you would say, What's wrong with this woman? She needs to be a submissive wife. Well, if that's your instinct, I don't know what else to tell you. (laughs) Something's wrong. Or maybe some of you would sympathize, and you would say, yeah, man, if I was in that situation, that's so heartbreaking. I mean, I can understand how she she would feel like she was in a prison. And maybe some of you feel a quiet desperation sitting here right now because that describes your marriage, and you've never told anyone that. But here's the principle. Whatever you think of that story, it's a true story, and here, whatever you think of it, this is the principle that Paul is teaching in Romans 6 and Romans 7, 1 through 6. That woman was freed from that marriage covenant. She was freed from that man, and she was free to go on and marry another, and she was free to go on and, and serve the Lord and serve Jesus after he had died. The covenant that bound her to the relationship have been broken at his death. It bound her by the laws that govern marriage relationship. And death is the freeing principle. That's what Paul is teaching us. Death is the freeing principle. Death and burial free us from our former relationship with sin under the law. And what Paul says is, consider yourself dead to sin. That former relationship now has been dissolved. It's been dissolved. Praise God. So Paul says we have died to sinful passions which were enabled and activated under the moral law of God. Now, though we still have the moral law of God, we still desire in the Spirit to follow it. But the moral law of God no longer is there to trigger in us a reflexive, a knee-jerk rebellion to our God. We lived under the reign of death, and now we live in the new reign of grace, the reign of grace in life free from enslavement to sin. And, and before we come to Christ, we are enslaved to sin. I want to show you this is what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we were born into sin. Did you know that? The Bible teaches that we were born by nature into sin, Psalm 51.5. Now, this is David. This is one of the most anguishing, heartbreaking Psalms you will ever read. Read the whole thing later. And he is confessing his sins, his many sins before the Lord. He says, indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. I'm a human being who was born into a sinful human race. And every proclivity, every desire of my heart is bent toward rebelling against God and His Word Jesus said this in John chapter 8 to the most religious people in the history of the world, the Pharisees and the scribes. This is what he said in verse 34. Jesus responded, truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Listen, you're a slave to sin even in religion. Because religion can't save you. Only a relationship by faith with God's Son who died for you on the cross is the only thing that can save you. And what Jesus is trying to say to these super, these uber religious guys is this. So long as you're a sinner, you're a slave to the thing that you give yourself over to. 2 Peter 2, 18 through 19. Now, he's speaking about false teachers. And this is what he says they do to young believers. This is what he says they do to young lambs. To new believers, he says, For by uttering boastful empty words they seduce with fleshly desires and debauchery people who have barely escaped from those who live in error, these young believers. And here's what they promise them they promise them freedom. Isn't that what your culture is promising you? Freedom? But they themselves are slaves of corruption, since people are enslaved to whatever defeats them. These folks are enslaved to their own sin, which is defeating them so long as we give ourselves to it. You see, sin does not just damn us, it enslaves us. It bends us inwardly toward breaking God's word. Look at what Paul says here in Romans 6, 16, 17, and 20. He says, don't you know that if, if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey, either of sin leading to death Or of obedience leading to righteousness. But thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin. See the past tense there? Look at verse 17. For when you were slaves of sin. Verse 20. But now, since you have been set free from sin and have become indentured in service to God. Understand that we died to that which held us captive. In Christ we are freed from sin's bondage. And that is the point of this chapter. But how? How? Number two. We were buried in Christ's baptism. We were buried with Christ in his baptism. So I want to take just a few minutes and talk about what baptism is, what it does, and why it's so important in the New Testament. Verses 3 through 5, he says, "Or, Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so too we may walk in the newness of resurrection life. For if we have been united with him in the the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection when he returns. Amen. Now, last week we talked about being born again. We talked about the absolute necessity of a person becoming born anew, born again by the Holy Spirit. Now, another word for being born again or regenerate is the phrase baptism of the Spirit. It's to be baptized in the Spirit, baptized with the Holy Spirit. And this is what water baptism signifies. Outward external water baptism signifies the believer goes down in a watery grave, they come up resurrected to life to walk in the newness of Jesus' life. And there are some things we need to understand about the nature of baptism so that we aren't tempted to think that it's optional. Because it's not optional, it's an ordinance. And an ordinance just means a decree, an ordained decree. Jesus gave us this ordained decree in Matthew 28, 19, when he said, Go, therefore, into all the world and make disciples by baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and by teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. So what do we need to know about this? Water baptism, number one, is the outward sign of an inner consecration of the heart. Outward sign of the inner consecration of the heart. Now, let's suppose you were an ethnic Jew in the first century. You're sitting in a synagogue, and you're sitting there, and this guy named Rabbi... Shall, right, this guy named Paul, he comes to your synagogue to preach an encouraging message. And your rabbi calls on him. He's got the sudarim. He's got the head turban. He looks like a rabbi. Everybody knows he's a visiting rabbi from out of town. And so your local teacher calls him to the pulpit for a word of encouragement. It's like, come, rabbi. Do you have a word of encouragement to share with us? And Paul says, oh, you bet. <laughs> I sure do. And Paul gets up and preaches the gospel Of Jesus. And as he's going through these passages in the Old Testament, like Isaiah 53, which was written 700 years before Jesus, which says that he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the punishment that was upon him that was meant for us was upon him. In other words, our sins are laid upon this lamb who is pierced for our transgressions and his righteousness is given to us. It was written 700 years before Jesus came. And you're sitting there as an ethnic Jew and you're listening to Paul going, of course, that's what that passage means. All these prophecies, they make sense now. God planned on saving us, not just from Rome, not just from our geopolitical oppressors. God planned on saving us from our sins, from the tyranny of sin. And in your heart, you go, man, I believe. I believe that message. And at the end of the service, you sing the Tefillah. You sing the final benediction, the 18 benedictions, you make a beeline to Rabbi Saul, you go up to him, and you say, sir, I think that I became a Christian, because as you preach that gospel, that message, I received Christ, and I believed on him, and Paul says, amen, brother, let's find some water. Let's find that mikveh tank. Let's go down, right? Now, your rabbi comes up to you and says, that's good, good for you, but remember, you still have to circumcise your children. And Paul goes, no, no, they don't. The Jews don't and the Gentiles don't. Why? Because circumcision is the outward sign of the old covenant that you have been set apart to God's family, God's covenant family. And in the new covenant, it is baptism. Paul says, No, that's not true. Neither Jew nor Gentile must undergo this rite. Now they have been circumcised, as it were, in the heart. I want to show you this. Romans 2 28 through 29, he says something so shocking to his Jewish friends. They can hardly hear this because it's so central to their identity. He says, for a person is not a Jew. Now, sometimes when he uses the word Jew, he means a covenant member of God's family. Sometimes he means it ethnically. Sometimes he's talking about Jew and Gentile, like Jews and non-Jews. But here he means a covenant family member. He says, for a person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly. And true circumcision is not something that's visible in the outward flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew that is a covenant member of the family, who was one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not the letter. Notice how he used the word circumcision. The external symbol pointed to an internal work, a cutting away, a consecration of the person's heart by the Holy Spirit when they put their faith in Jesus. Now, Galatians uh, particularly was a problem. Paul had planted the Galatian church, and he left these people. Now, if you read that book, the book of Galatians, it's not very many chapters. It will take you one afternoon to read it. Here's what you'll notice. You'll notice that that is probably the most hasty letter ever written in the ancient world. Because Paul got this report that his little children, his church that he had planted in Galatia, there were these men who came up called the Judaizers. And the Judaizers were a Judaizing faction that came up from the Jerusalem church. And they followed Paul to every church. And after he preached the gospel of salvation by grace through faith alone... They came after him and said, no, it's actually believing in Jesus plus circumcision, plus kosher eating dietary laws, plus the festival and the Sabbath calendar. They said all of these things. Now, Paul got word that his little church, his little Galatian church has these, this group of teachers who are there perverting his gospel, Jesus plus anything else. And he burns up the page with these molten words from heaven, and he says, anathema. Absolutely not. And this is what he says. He says in chapter 5, verse 6, he says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. It's just an external right. What matters is faith that is working through love. Notice what it is. It is genuine faith which, which works itself out in loving God and loving people. That's what matters. Does a person have justifying faith? Galatians 6:15 he says for both circumcision and uncircumcision mean nothing what matters instead is new creation at the end of this world god is going to redeem the whole cosmos and for the person who has received the holy spirit by justifying faith you are new creation remember we said last night uh, last week new creation has already started in you the project of new creation at the end of the world has begun now in your heart from the inside out. And Paul says, "Circumcision doesn't mean anything. What matters is a person who has been born again, new creation." Philippians 3:3 3, 3 says, "For we are the circumcision now. this is a title that the Jews use of themselves. We are the circumcision. The ones who worship by what? The spirit of God who boast in Christ Jesus and do not put any confidence in the flesh. The new badge of membership isn't the physical sign of circumcision. It's the believer who, with justifying faith, has now received the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and has been born anew by the Holy Spirit of God. So what does all this have to do with baptism? Well, baptism replaces circumcision as the new external marker the new external sign that a person is now in the new covenant family. Colossians 2, 9 through 13, Paul says this, For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. Full stop. Read that again. For the entire fullness, that is to say everything that God is, all of his attributes and properties, This is the technical theologian language, okay? All of the attributes, all the properties of God, whatever defines God, dwells in Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, in bodily form, by nature. Verse 10, and you have been filled with him who is the head over every ruler and every authority. We're not waiting for Jesus to be king. Jesus is king. Jesus has exalted to the throne of David. He, seats, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and from there he rules the realm. And he has been exalted positionally over every ruler and every authority. It says in verse 11, you were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands. So this is a different kind of circumcision that we're talking about. By putting off the body of the flesh, instead it was the circumcision of Christ, which is what? Verse 12, when you were buried with him in baptism. So there is a circumcision of the heart, which is a cutting away, an inner consecration, an inner sanctification of the person at the heart level that Paul refers to as the new circumcision. And this is a baptism, and water baptism signifies this. Water baptism signifies the person who has been consecrated, sanctified, and set apart to the Lord. So, in summary, physical circumcision pointed toward a day when God in the new covenant would consecrate his people inwardly by the Holy Spirit. Presently in the new covenant, physical circumcision doesn't count. It is of no value. New covenant believers have undergone a circumcision of the heart and inward sanctification and renewal of the spirit by faith, by justifying faith. And this inward circumcision of the heart is equated with spiritual baptism in Christ, which water baptism signifies. Now let's go back to Romans 6.4. He says this, Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in the newness of life. We have been buried with Christ, raised to life, so that we may get up and walk in the newness of life according to God's word. But we must also understand that baptism, water baptism, is a public confession of faith and obedience. Now, there's a reason why we don't baptize infants in this church, several reasons, but we do baptize children, and it's right here in Colossians 2.12. So, Colossians 2.11, he says, you and I have undergone a kind of circumcision of the heart, which is baptism, and then in verse 12, we've been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith. So, this is critical. In order for someone to be baptized in this church or baptized really in any, any local church, they must have faith. They must have justifying faith. Now, in the New Testament, we don't have a single example in the New Testament of anyone being baptized as an infant. None. And we have about 12 examples of people being baptized as a result of their repentance and faith. And so they are baptized in response to a message that they hear. And in the book of Acts, it actually says, and them and they, that person and their household repented and believed and were baptized. So this is the reason why we do baptize children. Now, we just got back from a conference, the pastors, where at that particular church that was running the conference, they don't baptize anyone under the age of 18, uh, which I thought was kind of strange but they're free, they're free to do this. certainly are free to do that if they, if they think that's appropriate, but we baptize little kids. We'll baptize an eight or a nine-year-old. Some of the eight or nine-year-olds, I don't know if you remember, but some of the video testimonies that we play as these kids are getting baptized, some of the eight or nine-year-olds can articulate the gospel better than some of the adults. That little Isaac... Man, I tell you what, the last time I was watching their baptism testimonies and little Isaac came up and he gave his baptism testimony, I just, I like, I broke into tears. It was just such a powerful articulation of the gospel. And so understand, this is why we practice what we call believer's baptism in the church. This is a covenant sign in which this person is saying, I am proclaiming and professing my faith in this body. And when they come up out of that tank, what do we do? (laughs) Praise God. Because we are saying we affirm your commitment. We affirm what you are doing. You are welcomed into this local body, and we're receiving them into the body of Christ. There's this fascinating story in Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, there's a a guy named Cornelius, and Cornelius is an interesting fellow because he hasn't totally converted over to Judaism. He's a Roman centurion, and in that story, what's going on there is that uh, he has been very generous toward the Jews, toward the believing community, very generous uh, to a fault, and he's a believer. He's a synagogue worshiper. He comes in on synagogue uh, on, on Sabbath, and he sits in synagogue, probably in the Gentile bench, and he worships right along with the Jews, and God has taken note of this, and so God wants to start salvation, the project of salvation among the Gentiles through Cornelius, through the household of this Roman centurion, Cornelius, and so God appears to Peter, the apostle Peter, at the same time he's speaking to Cornelius, they both kind of are getting messages from God at the same time and are told to meet one another. Long story short, Peter goes up to where the man is. Peter's in Jaffa. He goes up to where the man is staying, where the man's home is. He enters the room. And what's so interesting about the story is just how, how much intensity is in the story. Like, it's just tense. You can feel that the Jews really don't want to come into a Gentile's home. They're not supposed to. They're not supposed to go into these filthy pagan Gentile's homes. And here he is God has literally told him by way of a vision, I want you to go to this house and preach the gospel. And so when they come in, you can feel the unease in the story. And so Peter and his entourage, they go into the house, and Peter's like, well, I, I guess I should obey and tell you what I came here to tell you. And then he does. He begins to uh, tell tell them the gospel story. He begins to tell them that Jesus died on a cross for their sins and that God rose this man from the dead and that now God accepts all Jews and Gentiles by faith, by trusting in Jesus' sacrifice on a cross for our sins. And as he's doing this, as he's telling the story, the Holy Spirit, the fire of God, just falls on the people in this home. And the people in this house, they just break out into these unknown tongues and these languages. And it is apparent that God is pouring the Holy Spirit out on Cornelius and his household. And Peter's like, well, I guess you should be baptized. And so he said, look at this. He says in verses 47 and 48, he says again, well, can anyone withhold water and prevent these people from being baptized? Who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. They were experiencing this inner transformation of heart, this inner circumcision being consecrated, cut away, sanctified to God. And the natural response of a person who has responded in faith and trusted in Jesus for salvation and experiencing the regenerated power of the Holy Spirit is to be baptized in water as a sign to signify. What God has done inwardly. So, what's our application today? Well, let me ask you, how often do you think in these terms when temptation comes to your doorstep? First of all, let me ask you this question. What doesn't tempt you? What doesn't tempt you? I'll tell you right now something that, that could never tempt me, would never be a temptation in my flesh, and that's tent camping. <laughs> I'm going there, looking at Patrick. Patrick knows what I'm talking about. Tent camping. I've never tended. Listen, if you grew up in a single wide trailer, you already know what it's like to camp in a camper. And thinking about tent camping is just like thinking about practicing being homeless. You don't want to do it. So understand that I am never tempted to tent camp. So if you invite me out, I will politely say, No, I'm dead to that. (laughs) But now I'm a hot-blooded Irish boy from the South who grew up in a very rough neighborhood. So there are some challenges that come into my life where I am very tempted Somebody cuts me off in traffic and does so in a very callous manner, as they did yesterday afternoon. I am very tempted to wave at them with one finger. Okay, so I have temptations that come into my life and they are immediate triggers. And here's what I, pra- I, I'm not kidding, I've been practicing following this passage, doing this as just kind of a reflexive knee-jerk thing. I say, no, I'm dead to that. And then as I was studying it this week to preach it to you, I, I was, boy, I even started doing it even more, even yesterday as soon as that guy did that. I was like, no, I'm dead to that. Hey, come on in. All <laughs> right. So think about the things that tempt you. Do you think about dealing with temptation in this way? No, I'm dead to that. I consider myself, I count myself. Now, this doesn't mean that the sinful nature has been eradicated. Did anybody get up this morning thinking, wow, I think my sinful nature was eradicated? (laughs) No, this is the reason why we argue and we fight and we quarrel. This is the reason why we sin and we desire things that are off limits, because the sinful nature is still present in our life. And when those sinful temptations come our way, we just say, no, listen, I have gone in this watery grave with Jesus Christ. I have to it, and I have been raised to the newness of life. My second challenge from this message is that if you have not been water baptized, you need to be. You need to be. Baptism is not an option. It's an ordinance. It's an ordained decree from our Lord in Matthew 28. Believers are to openly declare their faith in Jesus, the Messiah, Because baptism dramatizes an inner transformation of the heart. Baptism dramatizes the inner transformation of the heart. Let me ask you, has your heart been transformed by the 110 proof grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? Baptism proclaims our death to sin in Christ and our intention to live before this body, accountable to this body, with the help of this body in holiness. Have you been baptized? If you haven't, sign up for the class. We would love Pat, Pastor Patrick, Pastor Ryan, they would love to take you through it and help you to understand it better from a biblical perspective and get you ready with, uh, to proclaim the gospel. Third application is if you have children who are at an age where they can uh, think about wanting to be baptized, have you taught them the gospel? Have you taught them the gospel? Have you taken the time to sit them down and walk them through? Listen, we have a couple of resources we want to give you. If you go to the class, we'll give you a couple of resources that will really help you walk your child through the gospel story. Listen, we were made in the image of God. We are God's image bearers. We fell into sin. Adam damned the human race. God did something about that. God sent his one and only son to die on a cross and take our sins for us. And then God vindicated his claim to be Lord by raising his son from the dead. And all who believe in him will no longer die. You can't kill a dead man. We're already dead in Christ, alive through resurrection power. Amen? Explain that to your kids. Give your kids that hope and get them in that class. Let's baptize a bunch of kids. I want to hear some more testimonies like Isaac's that just stir my heart and and stir my eyes to tears. Don't you? Uh, Let's pray together. I'm going to invite Daniel back up, the Daniels. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for this word. We're just so overwhelmed that we have this anchor in human history, which anchors us to this truth, this word And it teaches, and it instructs, and it saves us. And God, this morning as a congregation, we just want to collectively, we want to commit our lives to you. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, but in this message, like that Jew sitting listening to Paul, the truth of Scripture has come alive to you this morning. Will you just embrace Christ? God has, as we said last week, offered you a pardon from sin, but you must receive the pardon to get out of jail. Will you receive it this morning? And If you're here and you're a believer and you say, I'm, I'm making a commitment from now on, every temptation that comes my way, that comes into my life, I am going to consider myself dead to that. I am no longer alive to that. I've died with Christ and raised to life and I'm a new creation. God, we want to commit ourselves this morning to you. In Jesus' name, amen.